0: Do some leaders seem to amplify intelligence. Around them, people are at their best, they get better and smarter, teams grow, problems get solved, but other leaders seem to drain that capability right out of their team.
1: From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FL CMAA Podcast Network. Liz Wiseman is a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She is the author of New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, The Multiplier Effect, Tapping Into the Genius Inside Our Schools, and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowledge in the New Game of Work. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this educational session. Ready to go. Okay. Sorry about the um, small little technical glitch, but good morning, Florida Club Managed Association. This is Tommy Spaulding, your host, and we're in for a real treat this morning with my dear friend, uh, Liz Wiseman. Uh, This is um, our fifth speaker of the nine uh, speaker series of our eight month program of Heart Led Leadership webinar for all the Club Managed Associations in Florida. And um, I have the honor to introduce my dear friend, uh, Liz Wiseman. I'm going to go over the bio piece, and then I'm going to get more of the personal piece. But Liz is uh, a dear friend. And if I, you know, in my my little world, this is my little leadership library. And I just love to read leadership books and write them as well. Um, But I do more reading than writing. Um, And if I had to pick my three favorite leadership books of all time, and people always ask me, what are your three favorites? And Jim Collins, Good to Great, is is up there and uh, Pat Lancioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team is my top three. And then this book here, Liz's book uh, Multipliers is my top three uh, best leadership books of all time. And Liz is um, a leadership research development firm. She's worked with Apple, AT&T, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike. Um, She writes for the Harvard Business Journal, writes for Fortune Magazine. Um, She's a lecturer at BYU and Stanford University. Um, She was a former executive at at Oracle and ran their kind of global um, HR development. And uh, there's a thing called Thinkers 50, which really lists the top 50 thinkers, research thinkers in the world. And Liz has been on that list multiple times. Um, But what I love about Liz more than anything, she's an amazing wife uh, to Larry, an amazing mother uh, to Christian and Joshua. And she's just hilariously fun. Just to give one small little story that'll make you all laugh. Early morning on May 25th, I think a couple of years ago, Liz and Larry invited me over to our house for dinner, and we we had a, they cooked a wonderful dinner, and Larry um, wanted to cook uh, creme brulee uh, homemade uh, for the dessert, and you know those little blow torches that you're supposed to have to 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 cre- crystallize the creme brulee. Well, the blow torches, the tiny little blow torches, weren't weren't, weren't working. But the creme brulee was kind of raw, and we couldn't figure out how to do it. And before you know it, Larry took all the creme brulee and the, the patio out there, and Liz could show you a picture of the patio, and took this big, like, construction blowtorch <laughs> out in the patio right there. And he's just blowtorching the, the creme brulee with this huge, like, fire that was, like, three feet long. And anyway, it had me in stitches. It was the best creme brulee I've ever had. And so, Liz, thank you so much for getting up so early. I know it's 7 o'clock in the morning on California time. You're a dear friend, a mentor, and somebody I love so much. And thank you for sharing your, your message of multipliers to the Florida Club Management Association Managers.
0: Well, Tommy, thank you. It's a joy to be with you and your group. Like, um, I kind of operate on that. Any friend to Tommy is a friend of mine, and I love being part of everything that he is leading, and he's a leader I admire deeply. Um, Here's what I hope will be um, my little contribution to this idea of heart-led leadership, and that is that I want to put this out there as kind of a thesis uh, for us to explore. And I think everyone's probably heard this old adage that, what is it? A way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Um, I want to put out there that, oh, the way to people's hearts is through their minds and when we are intellectually engaged when we are mentally engaged when we're mentally challenged it's actually not only where we do our best work it's where we feel the greatest joy um you know sometimes it looks like when people are mentally challenged like oh that's too hard these are big problems that they pull away but i actually believe it is your greatest opportunity to pull people in close um so we're going to talk really about leadership but it's going to be a conversation about intelligence and we're going to look at the intelligence of your team and we're going to consider like are you getting all the intelligence of your team uh, we're going to ask the question how do you build a really smart and capable team. A team, of course, that can think and act with reason and solve hard problems. But how do you build a really intelligent team where everyone's ideas are being used, everyone's minds matter, where the team can um, solve hard, complex problems, but also a team that can adapt and change in uncertain times and a team that can actually thrive a bit in uncertainty, which sounds like a strange concept because so many people haven't been thriving in uncertainty. But how do you build a team that can think clearly and make good decisions in times of uncertainty? So we're going to talk about intelligence of your team. Are you using all of that? And we're also going to look at how your own intelligence and by that, I mean your know how, your insights, your skills, your ideas, your problem solving capability, how the intelligence of a leader and how she or he uses that intelligence has a pretty dramatic effect on their team's intelligence. Now, um, all of that, like in my work on this, it started with a couple simple observations. And the first was that it seems to me, and this was, um, as Tommy mentioned, I spent some time in the corporate world, just 17 years. and there were a couple observations I had coming out of that. The first was that it seemed like there was more intelligence and capability inside our teams than most managers were using. That companies were working really hard to hire smart, capable people, but then they were underutilizing utilizing them. Um, so we're, and we're going to do a lot of chat here today. I want to start our session here on chat. So if you've wandered from your keyboard, I'm going to invite you to head back to where you can, uh, type something into your device. And I want you to type not just a message to panelists, but to everyone here on our webinar. And my question for you is, um, if you've had a job where you were simultaneously overworked, but underutilized, meaning you're working really, really hard, you're really busy, but in some ways you're bored, you're coming into work knowing you have more capability that's being used more ideas that are getting that are getting heard okay if you've been overworked and underutilized would you in chat describe what it feels like to be overworked and underutilized okay jason thank you for getting us started he says empty frustrating And keep them going and and do this, if not for the purely the therapeutic value of this one, because it is frustrating to be overworked and underutilized. Okay, stressed, stagnant, disrespected. Not able to perform at my best. Um, I think they would. Oh, wow. Jeff says, I think an individual would feel as though they are a professional shell of themselves. Which is the idea that we're going to explore today. Bored, demoralized, unappreciated. Overworked, underutilized. Stunted. Um, thank you, Anna. Yeah, it's an empty kind of a feeling. One of the words I hear a lot of people say is it was exhausting, which I've always found to be strange. Why would it be exhausting to be underutilized. So I want you to go back to another time when you were underutilized. And if you felt exhausted, tell me why. It's a word I hear over and over. People say, man, it was exhausting. Because it's constraining. Ah, Michael, because we're wasting potential. To so ask this question once, um, it was a room full of educators, uh, superintendents from across the state of California. It was in a great big ballroom. And I asked, why is it exhausting to be underutilized? And I was encouraging people to just shout out their experiences. And from the back of the room, there's this one woman, and she yells at the top of her lungs, because it's a lot of work to act this stupid. You know, I think there's a lot of people who are working hard, but not being productive. There's a lot of people who are working hard but not having their voices heard. There's a lot of people who are working hard actually to look as if they don't know what they're doing because they're having to make room for someone else to be brilliant. Um, Oh, uh, Pamela says, because our emotions are taxed when we're thinking and feeling about being underutilized. Yeah, there's not enough positive reinforcement and thought provoking kind of work. oh, these are fantastic insights. Okay, so that was his first observation is it seems like there's a lot of latent intelligence that managers are hiring smart people, but not utilizing all of that intelligence. And the second observation was that some leaders are really smart, but people around them don't get to be really smart. They get to be, as somebody said, and I want to go back to this, a a professional shell of themselves. But then there's other leaders who are really smart and capable and around them, people are at their best. And I noticed this over and over and over. Why are we at our best around some leaders but not around others? Or put from the leader's perspective, why do some leaders seem to amplify intelligence around them? people are at their best, they get better and smarter, teams grow, problems get solved. But other leaders seem to drain that capability right out of their team. And I, I kind of locked on to this question and really wanted to understand why. Um, I want to, this led to this idea that some leaders seem to be multipliers to the intelligence of their team, while other leaders appear to be diminishers. We're gonna start with just this really quick video, and then I'm gonna ask you to be thinking about a multiplier and a diminisher you've worked around. What is the fate of the smart and the talented? The corporate world finds smart, talented people and promotes them into management. But many of these leaders never look beyond their own capability to see the full genius on their team. Have you ever worked around someone who made you feel smarter and more capable? We call these leaders multipliers. Have you ever worked around someone who made you question your own intelligence? We call these leaders diminishers. They may hire smart people, but they quickly put other people in the background. They are smart leaders, but they shut down the smarts of others. Diminishers come at such a high cost, they waste talent and intellect that sits right in front of them. Organizations can't afford diminishers. Multipliers come from all walks of life, from corporate boardrooms to our school's classrooms. They are leaders like Lutz Zeeab, Bill Campbell, Wangari Mathai, and many more. These people are real and the way they lead can be learned and it can be developed. What would happen in your organization if you operated more like a multiplier? Imagine what is possible with access to all the intelligence that sits in your organization. Okay, that's the simple idea that we're going to explore. It gets a little bit more complicated, which we're gonna get to, but here's what I want you to do. Um, I'm guessing you started to think about bosses that you've worked around, or maybe colleagues. What I want you to do is I want you to scan back across your entire career. Now you can go back on your whole life if you want, but I want you to identify someone who um, was what, you know, I would call a diminisher. Someone around whom people held back, played it safe. Uh, someone you might have been working extremely hard, but you're not making progress. Problems aren't getting solved. This could be a boss. It could be a sports coach. It could be um, a school teacher. Could be a roommate. I know some people who have picked family members uh, for this role, and I, of course, I don't want you to tell us their name. I just want you to think about the way this person led, the way they led you, the way they led others. I also want you to scan back and identify someone who was a multiplier, someone around whom you did just your finest work. Uh, You know, you thought clearly, progress gets made, hard problems get solved, like you're full of energy. Okay, I'm going to hope you've got both names um, in your mind, and here's what I want you to do. I've got a few questions for you. We're going to start with what did your diminisher do? We're gonna describe that in chat. I'm then gonna ask you, we'll have a poll question. I'm gonna ask you how much of your intelligence did this leader get from you? And I'm gonna ask you to quantify that on a scale of zero to a hundred. So you might be thinking about that. If hundred is all of your insight, knowledge, technical skills, um, you know, understanding of the market, business acumen, creativity, all those things that your mind can do, How much were they getting access to? Not how hard you were working. How much of your mind did they get access to? You know, There were 10 apples on the tree. Were they able to harvest all 10? Or were they leaving some of that capability unused? Sort of rotting on the tree. We're gonna do those same two questions about multipliers. And we're gonna start in chat and start us off with what did your diminisher do? Now I want you, and I don't mean what did they do to you? Uh, would you describe in chat the behavior. In a word or two, a sentence. Use shorthand and describe not to just panelists, describe to everyone. Okay. Michael's got us started, and I want you to flood chat with what these leaders do. Okay. Here we go. They controlled, they led with fear, they dismissed suggestions, they dismissed your input. They made you second-guess everything or they second-guessed everything. I'm not sure exactly what was um, meant there. What else? I'd love it if you made it hard for me to read these. They're flying so fast. Okay, Uh, last one in, first one out. Uh, they kept things close to the vest. They didn't share information. Of course, information is like the raw ingredient of being smart and making good decisions. They often withhold that, sometimes on purpose for power kinds of reasons. Knowledge is power, but sometimes just through neglect. Okay, um, they, uh, let me see. Okay, we're jumping to multipliers. parts. We're going to hold on that for a second. The. Uh, Okay, we are just on the diminisher stream here. So just stay on, what did your diminisher do? Um, okay, let me see. I had an individual, a diminisher owner of a club who always micromanaged and had little to no honorable ethics. I had a boss um, who allowed me to explore and make improvements. Without needing improvement um, and develop mental paycheck days. That's interesting. So I assume that's a diminisher and a multiplier. Pamela said they don't acknowledge obvious um, accomplishments. They point out what's wrong. They shine the spotlight on themselves rather than others. They lack transparency. Um, yeah, a small picture can't get past their own ideas. Like they have this narrow view of the world. Um, and says they gaslight, and you often see that with some of these like narcissistic oriented kinds of diminishers um, and not supportive of continuing education. They exclude those that are jealous or that they're threatened by. Okay, they make quick decisions based on emotion. Now I know there are a few of them there that look like you're describing your multiplier. If that was describing your diminisher, would you put that back into the chat stream? Because I don't want to ignore that point of view. They felt intimidated based on other people's success. Okay, if you've got more on the behavior of the diminisher, put it in there, but we're gonna pop up this poll, this first poll. And so Beth, why don't you go ahead and give that to us? Um. Okay, fantastic. What I want you to do is whatever number you put, like, okay, if 100% is all of my capability, despite how hard I was working, how much were they able to get based on the way they led? Would you put a number in there? What's the closest band on that? How much of your full and true intellect and capability were they getting access to? Now, as soon as you've um, indicated your experience there in the poll, I've got another question for you out on chat. We're not going to go over to the multiplier side just yet. But I want you to get inside the head of that diminishing leader for just a moment. And I want you to tell me in chat, what did this leader assume to be true? What's the mindset, the set of assumptions that they're operating under? Like usually our behavior is governed by some set of beliefs. Okay, think about that diminisher. They believed that... Uh, Michael says they knew the better answer. What did the diminisher believe to be true? No one could be as effective or valuable as they were. They were threatened by the success of others, um, and that would cause the organization to move on. John says that their way was the only way. Okay, let me go back to the poll. Um, Beth, do we have, let me see, we've got about half of the people have voted on the poll. And let me see if I would probably call an average in there. It's, I'm looking, it's actually not too far off of a bell curve distribution with the average there being in that 41 to 50% of, of people's capability. What we found in the research was that these diminishing leaders were getting less than half of people's available intelligence. 48% is the number that came out on average. Of course, they're they're paying people market rate for talent, you know, typically, but they're underutilizing it. It's like they're paying a dollar but getting 48 cents of value out of this investment in talent and capability. Um, yeah my diminished wouldn't acknowledge positive contributions to staff members um okay so and someone said i agree with michael like they knew the better answer they're operating under this assumption that they know better that people need that knowledge that people aren't going to be able to figure it out without them okay so what we're going to do here and oh maybe we didn't share the results on that poll so that is what we've been seeing up there you can see the largest Amount So a fourth of the people said they were getting, you know, between 40 and 50% of my capability. Okay, we are going to turn our attention over to the multiplier side of things. So would you, now in chat, so we're going to cleanse the palette here on chat. So we're going to stop on the diminisher. And now with the multiplier, would you describe in contrast what your multiplier leader did? And you can go back to that one person, you could think of a second person that you worked around who was a multiplier to you. Describe their behavior. Okay, Steve has got us going with they were inclusive, they delegated, there was an open door policy. They were fully engaged or perhaps that meant other people were fully engaged. They were willing to give you the knowledge and improve it. They were a cheerleader. They pushed for more, but let you use your talent. Nice. Let everyone have a voice. They valued your opinion. They had more faith in me than I had in myself. They trusted me, allowed me to stretch, listened, supported. They were open-minded. They trusted. They encouraged you to lead. Um, He sought out uh, your opinion and took it into consideration. Okay, now Liana's got us moving towards the mindset, though, they believed in you more than you believed in yourself. Like, what's the belief that sits underneath that, uh, Jason? said so they made it okay to make a mistake. Okay, why don't we pop up that second poll, Beth? It's the same question. We're just going to ask you now, how much of your knowledge, skills, insight, capability, creativity, did the multiplier leader get from you? okay other people saying made it okay to make a mistake um sought out opportunities to deflect credit okay that's an interesting one frederick i don't know if it means to deflect credit off of them and to you or did that mean deflect credit from you um Let me see. Jeff says my multiplier gave me a mental paycheck day and and indicated that the pro shop had never been merchandised accordingly. And as a reward, he told me to order any shoe inside the foot joint catalog. What shoe did I order? The most expensive shoe in the category with lizard dress. Okay. Fantastic. It's like, Hey, you know what? They're celebrating you in really big ways. And of course the lizard golf shoe is a pretty big way to to receive that as well. And Pamela said, lifted others up. Okay, now get inside the head of your multiplier, which is a better place to be, but I want you to really like think how they were thinking. What did this person believe to be true? And go ahead and fill chat up with that. Now, you might also think, okay, the times that I've been in multiplier mode where i feel like you know what i've been a multiplier to others i've seen it going on what was i thinking what was the belief i held that caused other people to be able to play big and to like step up and do great work and take ownership for the pro shop and merchandise it brilliantly like when i've been that kind of leader what's been going on in my head Okay, why don't we go ahead and um, we could probably end the poll now I think we've got more than half the people have voted and share those results and what we've got there is. Um, the majority of people 41% said it's between 81 and 90% the next biggest group said it was between 91 and 100 so well, if I looked at those data points i'd probably call that somewhere in the high 80s like. Oh, I don't know, 97 is just what's coming to my gut. There might be someone who could do like some a weighted average on that. Like some of you are great at math and someone just put right in chat, they got a hundred percent of my capability. How did they think? They thought everyone could conquer the world. Surely, thank you. That more hands make the job easier. That um, that they, they like felt secure and they wanted to see other people succeed. Um, They led by example, a healthy working environment, hundred percent. They, their belief was that if I teach people to fish for themselves, they can discover it for themselves and then they will fully themselves own it, which is a pretty good belief to be operating under um, as a leader. And it's a great foundation to start because when you go into times of chaos and uncertainty, it's that foundation that you need on your team. They made it safe to try um, anything. Okay. So, Let's go now to a little bit, just I want to briefly tell you what I found in this research. I want you to keep putting your insights on chat as well. And this is kind of a very quick summary of what we found. I don't want us to spend too much of our time here. What we found is, I guess I'll start here with what I've already mentioned is that there's a huge differential between what these diminishing leaders are getting from people around them People are only able to give about half of their capability, whereas these multiplier leaders get virtually all of people's mental capacity, their ideas, their insights, their energy, um, their discretionary energy. And you can imagine the words they use to describe this experience. I'm gonna come back to that. Um, We found some pretty big differences in how they think, what they see, When they look out at their teams, you know, Diminisher tends to see, like they hold this belief, this assumption that other people aren't going to figure it out without me. Now, they don't even need to believe that they have all the answers, that they know what's right, that their way is the only way. They just are believing that other people are dependent on them. Like, you know what? You know, he's not going to, you know, Michael's not going to be able, oh, no, it was Jeff, that that Jeff's not going to be able to like get that pro shop in top shape unless I'm there with him, showing him what to do, unless I'm part of that process. Whereas the multiplier has this belief that, you know what, people are smart and they're going to figure it out. Now they might make some mistakes at first. They might trip and fall, but they can pick themselves back up. They have this belief that other people are capable. Now, if you're familiar with this idea of a growth mindset, It was Carol Dweck herself, who's the author of this idea of a growth versus a fixed mindset. It was Carol who made this observation that it's like these multiplier leaders not only hold a growth mindset about themselves, like, you know what, I'm smart, I'm capable, I can learn. It's like they're holding that mindset for their team. Like what happens when you encounter a problem, a setback, things are crazy, in the environment, and you remind yourself that the people on your team are smart and they can figure this out. I mean, maybe not the whole puzzle, but they can do a lot more than it may seem. Okay, we found they do a few things very differently. The first is how they manage talent. The diminisher tends to be an empire builder and that they love to hire really capable people, like kind of famously capable people, smart people, like, ooh, look who I've got on my team. But then they tend to underutilize them like little knickknacks put um, in grandma's curio cabinet or trophies like in the the club trophy case. Um, Whereas multipliers, they tend to be talent magnets. Not only do they scout talent, talent finds them because they get known as like the boss everyone wants to go work for. Like who doesn't want to go work for the boss who gives these, what were they called, mental paycheck days, like you do smart, smart things. And you know what? Golf lizard shoes for you. Or who doesn't want to work for the person who understands like this kind of thing you're uniquely brilliant at? I call it um, native genius, the thing that people do easily and freely. They spot that. And they they look at you more than just a job description. They, they see, wow, this is like kind of the thing that Liz does. And you know what? Maybe her job doesn't say, you know, do that thing, but I'm going to use that thing in her job. And I'm going to find ways to give her a chance to like really be brilliant at that thing that she's naturally brilliant at. And I'm going to spotlight it and recognize it. It's a pretty good gig. People run to work to be in that kind of environment. Now the second is the environment they create. The diminishers tend to be tyrants and they're not yelling chair-throwing kinds of tyrants, all the time or even most of the time, they just exude stress. They create an environment where people feel stress. And we know what happens to our ability to think and reason when we have the amygdala hijack, when they're that the anxiety, you know, lizard brain takes over. We are on a lizard thing today. And our ability to solve hard problems and reason and deal with trade-offs and true dilemmas, it literally just shuts down. Whereas a liberated creates an environment where people not, they don't feel stressed. They feel safety, safe to experiment, safe to try, safe to make a mistake and learn and recover, safe to tell the truth, um, to like speak an uncomfortable truth. Like, you know, boss, I don't think this is going to work. Or, you know, this thing we're trying, it's not working. Or, you know what, we're making these mistakes over and over safety for people to do that safety um for people to share big bold ideas okay the third difference is the way they set direction the diminisher tends to be a know-it-all they tend to tell people what to do they operate into directives they they give answers which means that they become like the hub the like of the organization like running around trying to you know direct traffic hey boss what about this okay let me Tell you what to do, whereas the multiplier tends to be a challenger when there's unknowns. They, they don't fill those with answers, they fill them with questions. Like, well, what do you think we should do? Or how do we, um, you know, keep our guests coming and comply with state and federal regulations? How do we do that? And they put those puzzles in front of other people. Now they may frame it like the way if you've got some guests coming over who like to do puzzles, you might put the frame on there, but you might lay the pieces out. You might even lay them out kind of in color um, sections, but then you let other people start finding those answers and filling in and solving those problems. They They create stretch and they're actually leaders who are pretty comfortable allowing other people to be uncomfortable. They don't just swoop in and say, let me fix it for you. Whoo, that feels better. They let you kind of sit with a little bit of discomfort, maybe even so much so that you are compelled to find an answer. Okay. Oh, Jeff, I see has got something really interesting here. let me see. He says, in my opinion, a goal multiplier is a person who is able to remove all or as many of the negative barriers, both physical and mental, that prevent an individual group to move forward in a positive manner for ultimate overall team success. Everyone's given a specific task and assignment and positive individual success breeds to overall team success. Football's a good example of this, where each individual is tasked to provide positive action for overall team success. Yeah, we see these multipliers. Thank you, Jeff. We see them. In the business world, we see them in the sports world. Um, one of my friends said uh, she was reading my, my latest book. She was just reading manuscript and She's like, Liz, man, can you tell a sports story? She goes, how is that possible? You're not even like good at sports. I'm like, ah, but I've learned to love and study sports and write about sports because it's where we see some just brilliant, brilliant examples of leadership and the outcomes are often very, very clear. So Jeff, thank you for that. Okay, so that is what we found. And the the big surprising thing initially was, wow, these diminishing leaders are leaving half of people's available capability on the table. You know, it's like someone gave you a pile of money and you just took half of it and you left the other half there. And then it just went away. Like that's their approach to talent and resource usage, Um, but they not only underutilize talent, they create an environment where people say, you know what, like working for the diminisher, it's frustrating and it's exhausting, it's exhausting. But working for that multiplier, it is, and go ahead and put it in chat. What's the experience like working for the multiplier leader? It is, give me a word to describe what that experience is like. But it's also difficult, isn't it? The two words that came up over and over in the research, when I asked people to describe it, they said, truth be told, like, it's a little bit exhausting. Like I worked so hard. I gave everything I had. It was tiring, but it was exhilarating. Kind of the way a good workout, like leaves you tired, but not depleted. Like somehow you have energy. I'm like, whoa, never worked so hard. I'm tired, but I can't wait to go to work the next day. Yeah, energized, enthusiastic, peaceful, relaxed. Like it's a great feeling when that team is in sync, when it's a frictionless kind of organization. Okay, so that was the first big finding from this research. And then the second one was a little bit shocking. It was a plot twist in this research. Okay, you've all probably watched a movie where, maybe you've watched one recently. The one that comes always comes to mind for me is Unusual Suspects. Or is it Usual Suspects? Tell I me, mean, what's the name of that movie? I'm second guessing myself. Usual Suspects? I think it's Usual Suspects. But you get to the part Usual uh, Suspects. Usual Suspects. Okay. Um, you get. Thank you. Um, oh, guys are so. Oh, yes. Thank you, Pamela. It's like you get to a point in a movie and there's a plot twist. And then suddenly you realize that the bad guys aren't the bad guys, that maybe the good guys are actually the bad guys and you've been seeing it wrong. Well, that was what it was like when I get to this research. I realize that actually most of the diminishing that's happening in our companies, in our clubs, in our churches, is not coming from these like tyrannical, narcissistic, bully kinds of leaders. It's coming from the heartfelt leader. It's coming from the good person that most diminishing is accidental. It's coming from what I call the accidental diminisher. So my question for you is, we're going to spend about 10 minutes on this. How might you with the very best of intentions be having a diminishing impact? And maybe you already know, I'm going to encourage you to use chat to help us all understand how this dynamic works. You can also use chat to sort of like declare like this is what i think i'm doing that could be having a diminishing impact maybe you already know you can write that in chat if you want um but if you hear one that strikes you that speaks to you feel free to put that in chat we're going to take a poll on it a little bit later i i want to tell you about um someone i consider to be a great leader who i think exemplifies this multiplier way of working but he also helps us see how easy it is to end up the accidental diminisher. Now, my guess is you all know who this is. I wouldn't mind if someone put it on chat, just so I know we're all talking about the same thing. Yeah. Michael, thank you, because this is Irvin Johnson. And uh, some of you might've thought, oh, that's Magic Johnson. Well, not yet, because if you look at his face there, he has a very, or, you know, the the style of the time, short shorts, the longer hair. um. This is a young man called Irvin Johnson, Jr. He is not yet Magic Johnson. He's a phenomenally talented ball player. Now, this is him in high school. He's growing up in the state of Michigan. He's playing for the Vikings. He's a phenom. I want you to imagine being his coach. What would that be like? Or being on his team, what would that be like? Irvin said that when he was this age, um, something his coach said to him really, shaped him, changed him. His coach said to him, Urban, every time you get the ball, I want you to. Would you fill in that blank for me? What would the coach have said? Every time you get the ball, I want you to. Jason says, pass it. Michael says involve your teammates. Now, if you played high school basketball, I want to hear from you. What did his coach say to him? <laughs> Score. Yeah. Steve says, make someone on your team better. You would think his coach said that. But what his coach said is, "Urban, every time you get that ball, I want you to take the shot. And so he did. And he scored a lot of points. And the coach loves it because he's doing exactly what the coach has asked him to do. He's this coachable kid. Now, the other players love this why it's probably obvious why they love it is they're winning they like they can't be beaten with um young Irvin on their team they would they won every game they were an undefeated team they would win with let's say 54 points and Irvin would have scored maybe um 50 or 52 of those points but everyone loved it and it's win after win they're celebrating Then there's this one game, nothing special about this game, but he just notices something kind of different about this game. Celebration comes to the end, the players are leaving the gymnasium with their parents and young Irvin happens to notice, he's a teenager, remember this, that he noticed the faces of the parents who of course came there to see their kid play. But what did they get? Now, he saw this, and I, I don't know if it hurt him, but it really, he, he said, like, do me it impacted him. Like, and he said he made a decision that he would use his God-given talent to help everyone on the team be a better player. Like, he could tell he had this special talent, and he did. And, you know, it was a year, several years later that this Michigan sports writer, I think when he was playing over at Michigan State, like, said, he's magic. He just raises the level of play of every team that he plays on. I think it really captures two important ideas. One is like to be the multiplier of the team. You can't play so big that no one else gets to play, but you also don't have to play small because it's not like he spent the rest of his career, like holding back, like on the sidelines, just like cheering for other people, he plays huge. If you've seen him play, you know he's huge. He took a lot of shots, made a lot of shots, but it's not all he did. And he played big, but he played in a way that invited everyone to play big. I think it also captures how easy it is to end up an accidental diminisher, doing the very things you've been asked to do, reinforced to do, celebrated in doing things that have helped the team win, but end up weakening the capability of the team. So with that kind of as a backdrop, what I wanna do is ask you, which of these nine ways might you be having an accidentally diminishing effect? Now, we're gonna start here with the idea found. For each one, you're gonna see two pictures. Picture on the left is like my way to capture the best intent. Like here's the noble intent from the leader. And then the picture on the right will capture what the experience really is like for other people. Okay, idea fountain. This is one of mine. I am, love creative environments. Like I kind of have a creative mind. I love working where people are just like popping off ideas and doing creative things. So I pop into work, hey, what about this? Have you thought about this? And it's not that I think my ideas are better. It's that I think if I toss out a few ideas, I'm gonna get this process going. I'm gonna spark ideas, seed ideas. But what is it like to work around the idea fountain? What's that experience like for other people? Feel free to put this into chat. What do people tend to do around a fountain of ideas? How does it affect a team? Yeah, it just creates so many ideas that people end up chasing that. Or people end up idea lazy around people who are idea rich. Yeah like it's overbearing. And people don't need to do a lot of creative thinking. If they are down the hallway from the idea fountain, if they need a creative idea, they could just walk down the hall and wait for that fountain to go off because it kind of goes off every hour. So you can get your ideas there. Okay. Now, what about the always on leader, always present, always engaged, always something to say? They've They think of course that their energy is infectious like I'm pumping up my team I'm making this fun like I'm bringing the energy but what is it like to work around the energizer bunny what's it like to work for the person who is always on see what's that experience like for someone else people say man it's draining it's exhausting see they tend to kind of squash others they take up a lot of space and they kind of block others out. But what's even more interesting is not that they sort of suppress others' voice, is that we tend to suppress their voice. What do you do when you see an always-on colleague walking down the hallway towards your office? It's a fairly universal reaction. What do you tend to do? You see, <laughs> Jason's got to, you know, it's like this, you know, you hide, you don't want to make eye contact with these people, so it's, you know, we tend to avoid them and they don't realize that they have become white noise. We've blocked them out as well. Okay, the rescuer, big hearted leader loves their people. In many ways, it's the heart led leader who's not thinking about the growth of their team. They see someone struggling, they want to help. They want people to be successful. They jump in, they help. But what happens when the leader is helpful too early or too often? what happens to people on their team what's it like to be rescued you know we think when we're rescuing we're sending this message of i care about you i want you to be successful i want you to win yeah people get dependent what's the message that actually gets sent every time you rescue someone and i wouldn't mind pausing here for a second and And inviting people to write down in chat what message gets sent. Yeah, see there's subtext to our actions and that subtext is, you need my help. You're dependent on me. You can't do this without me. I don't think you can do this. I think you lack capability. Like things we would never say to someone and they're not what we believe, but our actions are, are shouting these assumptions. And when people feel like we feel that way, they tend to set back and not solve problems for themselves. And they tend to defer up, wait for the rescue. Okay, the pace setter, they're they're leaders who are driven, achievement oriented, and in many ways, they're leading by example. And of course, we've been taught and told to do that. But what happens when the leader gets out ahead of his team And it's showing what it looks like. Okay, let me show you what good customer service looks like. I'm going to spend time with the customers. I'm going to like, you know, check in with everyone after a meal. I'm going to like demonstrate this. And the leader gets out ahead of the team. What do other people tend to do? Of course, we think they're going to speed to catch up. But what we find is that most people actually just watch. They're watching you do their thing. And you're like, come on, guys. Like, I'm showing you because I want you to catch up. I want you to do what I'm doing. But you see, when we set the pace for our team, we end up creating more spectators than followers. People are thinking we're amazing. Oh, my boss, like, she's amazing. She's like so good with customers. Um, What about the rapid responder? This person who's on it, it's see a problem, fix a problem. You know, they're quick to answer An email to respond to a text and of course their narrative is they want a team that is responsive that can respond to opportunities in the marketplace or solve problems for your customers, but what happens when the leader is quick to respond. What do other people tend to do. When the leader jumps on something. You know other people tend to sit back, you know that feeling of. An email note is directed to you and it's your area of responsibility, but it was copied to a rapid responding boss or colleague. What do you tell yourself? Ah, they're going to get this. And so we let them do it. And it really confuses ownership. You know, if you put someone else in charge, but you're quick to answer a question, suddenly you're now in charge. What about the optimist, positive, can-do leader? This is one of my accidental diminisher tendencies. But how can this be diminishing? How could a positive can-do attitude be diminishing? But what happens when the leader only sees possibilities? What if the leader is like convinced, we've got this. We can do this. You've got this. You can win. What happens when you tell one of your teenage kids who's really consternating over something? Oh, I'm going to do terrible on this test. And you're like, oh, darling, you're going to do great. I just know you're going to do great. I'll tell you what my teenage daughter would say. It's like, "Uh, mom, no, I'm not. Like, I'm really da-da-da-da-da. And it wasn't until I finally figured out that she did not need me cheerleading her on. She needed me to acknowledge the struggle. And so I started to do things that were exactly opposite of what I wanted to do. I started to say, oh, Amanda, it seems like you're really unprepared for this test. Oh, wow, Amanda, you might fail this test. And I thought they were horribly discouraging things to say. And you can imagine her response. She's like, yeah, I know. That's kind of how I feel. Like, Mama, i got gonna get back and study. Thanks, thanks for talking to me. See, when the leader wants to see the upside, it relegates your team to look at the downside. But when the leader acknowledges the struggle People feel seen and heard and validated and willing to keep going. Mm. Or maybe we're so convinced it's gonna go right that we don't create a lot of room for people to make mistakes. So they don't even try, or they make mistakes and then they kind of fudge it to look like they haven't made a mistake. Okay, what about the protector? The, the, they're keeping people from, they're shielding people from difficult conversations, difficult circumstances. The logic is I'll take the hard stuff and give you the easier stuff. And working for this leader, um, they often feel like a banyan tree, they provide comfort, they provide shade. But what's the problem with the banyan tree? Is nothing grows under it and people don't grow under these leaders because we haven't exposed them to any of the hard things that require them to develop capability, the strategist, the big, bold thinker who paints such a clear vision that nobody else has to do big thinking. They're left executing and working in silos, you know, delegating all hard thinking up. Okay, now here's the last one, the perfectionist. Now, if you have perfectionist tendencies, my guess is you already know it. You know that it feels good to get it exactly right. You know, you're defending quality and excellence But you might not have asked yourself, what is it like to work for you? See, what is it like to work for the perfectionist? Feels more like this. So my question is, how might you, with the very best of intentions, be having a diminishing impact? Positive intentions with diminishing impact. You can feel free to put that in chat. I will tell you that leaders who talk about their own accidental diminisher tendencies tend to fix half of the problem right there. Just talking about it with your team goes a long way to keeping these positive intentions from having a diminishing impact. Okay, we've got a poll. And Beth, would you put that poll up? And as you put that poll up, the the question is, what might be your accidental diminisher tendency? Uh, Pick one of the nine. Feel free to write in your own on chat. And then Beth, as soon as we've got that poll up, ah, great. Um, If everyone could go in and um, click on your what you think is your accidental diminisher tendency. If you don't know, I want you to just say, hmm, if this little poll was being given to the people who work for me what would they choose and beth um would you tell me about how many minutes we have left i know we started late and you had suggested we were going to go a little late but i do not want to outwear the welcome here i would say 10 or 15 minutes if that would be um good for you that uh, totally works for me and if someone's like saying, no, 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 wrap it up sooner, like just put that little message us, message the panelists and we'll make sure to get that um, wrapped up in a way that works for everyone here. Okay, let me see. We've got more than half the people have voted on this poll. What is your accidental diminisher tendency? And I'm kind of daring someone to not just answer the poll, I'm daring someone to put it in chat. Maybe Tommy, will you get us started I've told you a couple of mine. I am an idea found and an optimist, and I've got some rapid responder tendencies that I've kind of learned to quell. Okay, Beth says perfectionist.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm a perfectionist.
0: Uh, Beth, were you saying Tommy's accidental diminishing tendency is perfectionist, or was that your own? That was my own. That's why we get along so well. Okay. <laughs> yeah, two perfectionists, like, fueling, yes. or making each other, like, mad, but, like... Yeah. But like, can you imagine what those two people could do to a team? You know, people often say, working for a perfectionist, like, I I, always, I never felt like I was good enough. So it's something we have to watch for. Okay, um, thank you, Derek, Pace Center, Michael. I always on, I'm daring you to put it in chat. Again, you're not saying like, I'm a diminisher, I'm a bad manager. It's like, this is where my best intentions can end up being misconstrued. and I would really encourage you to talk about this with your team. Um, It is the lazy man's way to be a great leader because if you talk about this with your team, like everyone on my team knows that I am an idea fountain. It's common knowledge. So when I'm spouting ideas, people don't have to go, okay, like what does Liz mean by that? Should we take her seriously? They feel like they have perfect right to say, hey Liz, do you actually want us to go do something about that? Or are you having an idea party right now? And i will be like, oh no, I'm having an idea party right now. Like ignore me as needed to get your job done. Like, you know, take these ideas into consideration, but feel no obligation. See, they have helped me fix the problem. And I didn't have to be the one to be like ultra aware and change my behavior. I'm not saying you shouldn't try changing some of your behavior, but it's the easiest way to keep you from diminishing your team is give people, like arm people with your accidental diminisher tendencies. They will help you. If you tell people, oh, I tend to be a rescuer. You know, you might get someone on your team who's struggling and you come in and they're like, Jason, let me see, do we have any rescuers here? Ah, Michael. They might say, Michael, you know what? Oh, I know you want to help me. Like, I feel loved, thank you, but I got this. I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get it done like kind of the way a three-year-old would say like, daddy, no, I do it. I don't need help. And and that way they feel that kind of support, but they also know that they can defend themselves and get that job done so that they get the learning rather than it defaulting to you. Okay, here's what we're going to do in our 10-ish minutes that we have together. Oh, we're going to look at this poll first, that's what we're going to do. We, ooh, look at that number one so i don't know if it was you know um, tommy and beth who started this and people followed suit but maybe it was already that data was in there but 23 percent perfectionists. so that's really high you don't see that as the number one for most groups but given that you run these country clubs i could see which is like no we need to get it exactly right like fork in the right place okay what else do we have we've got next biggest rescuer, rapid responder, yeah, there are things that come in the service industry. How do you like make sure that the whole organization provides amazing service without having a diminishing effect? Um, Actually, the fork is on the left. Jason, I knew the fork was on the left. I said in the right place. (laughs) that was like, did I make all the perfectionists itchy when I said, you've got to get that fork on the right and the spoon and the knife on the left. Like that probably would make people break out in hives here. Okay. Um, Here we go. So here's what I want us to do in um, our remaining time. Um, The first thing I want you to do is to take a look at this sheet. And what I've got on here is I've tried to sum up like it's kind of a lot of the book just summed up. So you can skip the book and go straight to this is uh, all those nine accidental diminisher tendencies. And then those are the columns. And then the rows are a set of multiplier practices. Some things that are very multiplier-esque that you can do that brings out the best thinking and capability in your team. And I've matched those up to those accidental diminished tendencies. So if I'm a rescuer, I can look down and go, okay, make space for mistakes. That's one. Ask questions, that's one. Give 51% of the vote, give it back. So would you look at that? And And I think you've got the handout. If not, snap a photo of this. And I would love 10 minutes from now for everyone to have one multiplier practice that you're gonna experiment with. And you might take this conversation back to your management team, which is like, okay, here's my accidental diminisher tendency. Here's this management practice that I'm going to try to do more of. And then you start a a conversation with your team, either by sharing your, your insight or you just invite them to tell you, like, here's what I see. I see some rescuer tendencies and I think I should probably try to do this. What do you see? And they might say, well, you know, Liz, we also see you know, like sometimes you're just so optimistic that I feel like I never get to make a mistake. Okay. And you let that conversation inform you. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to share a few multiplier practices. They're all the things that were on those sheets. Um, And I'm going to just focus on the ones that I think have the biggest payoff for your effort. Um, You know, how can we be more of a multiplier? Certainly in times of Uncertainty. And I'm going to give you a little practice for what it looks like um, right now in times of great uncertainty. Now, the first is to shift. And each of these are shifts moving away from something that often feels more natural and is more diminishing. So the first is instead of giving answers when people are stuck. Is you ask questions more questions, better questions, questions that get people thinking, questions that get people taking ownership, questions that focus the capability of people on the right problems, like these are the problems I want you to solve. You might take uh, what I call the extreme question challenge, which is to go into a meeting and try leading that, by only asking questions. I'm not suggesting you always only ask questions, but maybe you try this once or twice. Now, for me, this was an experiment I took. It was 18 years ago when I um, I'm a mom of four. But back then I was a mom of three. I had three young children and they were ages six, four and two years old. And I had quite a handful at home and quite a handful at work. I was uh, you know, on the Oracle's management committee, had a, a kind of a big job at Oracle. And yet, like the six, four, three combo um, pack in my house. And I was telling my buddy Brian at work, I said, ah, man, I feel like I've just like, I'm not being a very good parent right now. Cause I'm just constantly telling my kids what to do. I'm like barking orders. Like, you know, and, and, and I said, I felt like I was a bossy mom and Brian, who I guess is very diplomatic. It was a very good friend. He had two young daughters himself. He said, Liz, you don't seem like a bossy mom type. And I'm like, Brian, let me explain this to you. And so I explained bedtime. Now, you know what bedtime's like if you've got like a six-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old at your house. It's total chaos. And so this is what I explained. I'm like, Brian, this is how it goes. Kids, kids, it's for bed, leave her alone, put that away, go get your pajamas on. Okay, you know, go brush your teeth, No, go back. Use toothpaste this time, get that toothbrush wet. Okay, come on, come over here, it's story time, get a book. No, not five books, no big books. Come on, just one book, a little book. Okay, story time, done, say your prayers. Okay, in the bed, no, not my bed, your bed. And there's no yelling, it's just this barrage of telling and it's not working very well. And Brian, um, he offers a little bit of coaching. Now, of course, I wasn't looking for coaching. This was really recreational complaining more than anything, but he offered a little bit of coaching. And he said, Liz, why don't you try just tonight asking your kids questions? Instead of telling them what to do, why don't you just ask questions? And I interpreted that. I don't think he meant it this way. He claims he doesn't remember it, but I interpret that as like, ask only questions. And I decided, you know what? That challenge, that's so hard, that's interesting. I'm gonna take that challenge. I'm gonna see if I can go home tonight and only ask questions. I call it the extreme question challenge. it It was hard. It changed me forever as a parent and really has changed me as a leader. Because we get to bedtime, I can't tell them what to do. I just start asking questions like, and I kept it up from breakfast and I'm through dinner and playtime, but I'm like, okay, kids, what time is it? Like, well, it's bedtime. What do we do first at bedtime? Where do those toys go? Um, who needs help getting their pajamas on? Who's going to be the first to get their teeth brushed tonight? Okay, uh, what story are we going to read? Whose turn is it to pick the story? Whose turn is it to read the story? You know, and story time's over, I'm like, what do we do after story time? And they're like, mom, we say prayer. And then we prayed. And then my question to them was, okay, now who's ready for bed? They're like, me, me. And they hustled off into their beds. They stayed in their beds. They go to sleep. And I'm left wondering, you know, how long have they known how to do this? Was I not needing to do this before? Like, have they always been this capable? And I realized they were capable of a lot more than I thought they could do. I kept it up for three nights in this extreme form, like something's changing in me as I do it. And I'm realizing, I think about night three, I realize the people who work for me on my management team, they don't need me telling them what to do either. What they need from me is an intelligent question. This is what I consider the ibuprofen of leadership development in that it just fixes so many problems. So, you know, maybe you take this challenge and you lead through through asking questions. Maybe um, you follow the five second rule. You've probably heard me doing it a number of times today. You ask a question and then you wait at least five seconds and allow some uncomfortable silence for someone to step up uh, maybe you have a set of back pocket questions. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is I've got a set of like, these are my go-to questions or questions I can ask when I don't have time to think about what is the right question. I just ask questions like, what is your perspective on this? Or what are the risks or downsides? What am I not seeing that is important for me to understand? Um, like, or simple questions like, are there any reasons why we should not move forward with this? Um, If you're a little bit always on, you might um, take the poker chip challenge where you go in, it's not a game of poker, it's it's more like solitaire poker where you're like, I've got four chips to play in this meeting. Each chip represents something I say. And when I play a chip, I'm gonna like channel magic Johnson. I'm gonna play big with a big idea, a big question, frame the meeting. But once I play my chip, I'm gonna hold back. I'm gonna let other people play big in that meeting. And maybe I say like, I only get four each representing something you say or contribute. Um, You know, right now, so much is being done online in virtual meetings. Maybe if you're prone to talk a lot in a meeting, maybe you just default yourself to mute so that you have to make a conscious decision to come off mute. Instead of hiring smart people, use people's native genius. Find the way that they're naturally natively smart, what they do easily and freely and find ways to incorporate that into their job. Like instead of asking, is this person smart? Ask, in what way is this person smart? Right now, in times of uncertainty, you know, double up on whatever your appreciation level and expressing, like recognizing positive contributions, like right now is a good time to just double that up because it's so easy for us in times of uncertainty to second guess ourselves. Um, instead of just encouraging innovation, like, hey, you know what? Innovate, be creative, find an innovative solution. Maybe you let your team know where it's okay to take risks and where it's not okay. You know, in any operation, whether you're running the country club, running the military, overseeing um, a, a medical department in a hospital, there are places where you can, you know, experiment. Be bold, try new things. And then there are things you have to get exactly right. For those of you who had perfectionist as your number one, this is a really good one to say, okay, in this part of our operation, you know what, it can be imperfect. We can experiment, we can learn, we can iterate and improve. These are our playgrounds. Have some fun here. Over here, these are our freeways. This is where we cannot get it wrong. This is where we have fiduciary responsibilities like or legal responsibilities or a certain brand to maintain. This is where we have to get it right. Like my perfectionist tendencies might reign over here, but I'm going to hold them back over here and let people learn and grow. Right now is a great time to be talking up your own mistakes. Um, Instead of taking ownership for everything yourself, maybe you practice a practice that uh, John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco had given me, which is When you delegate something, give people 51% of the vote. Say, this is yours. Even if it's a narrow part of the operation or even a single decision, let people know that they can veto you, that you really are in charge. You're 51% of the vote and 100% of the accountability. Hold 49% for yourself. In times of uncertainty, people sometimes don't know, like, what it is they're supposed to do. You might practice what I call the three what's. When you're giving someone something, tell them here's what excellent looks like. Here's what it looks like. And if it's done really well, here's what done looks like. Like this is what it looks like to get it across the finish line. You'll know it's done when. And then the last one is here's what's out of bounds. You don't need to worry about these things. If you can give people the three what's, it gives people the clarity they need to move forward when there's a lot of chaos around. I think I'm going to go to this just final one, which is instead of just delegating word, give people a stretch challenge, something that's uncomfortable. Instead of just saying, here's a piece of work, like make it a stretch, make it something that feels uncomfortable, something that might even make someone feel like they're wobbling and they can't do it, you know, and instead of rescuing, just hold that standard and hold that tension because people can't stay there long invites people to move forward, which means get it done, learn, grow, find success. Maybe you figure out how to give everyone on your team just the exact stretch that they need. And right now, sometimes you need to adjust the stretch down where like, okay, this is overwhelming. Maybe you name a buddy so that people have someone to help them sort through um, that assignment and stretch times. Uh, let Let me leave with this idea that this is the kind of environment I think you create when you lead this way, when you ask people to do hard things, when you're there to coach, when you ask the questions, but they have the ownership to get it done. When you create an environment where people feel safe to take on a stretch challenge. Um, We've got this little video. This is a young woman, her name is Zia. She lives just outside of Park City, Utah, and this is her first attempt
1: at on 40-meter speed Don't do it. Well, here goes something, I guess. Okay. I can do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump. You got it. Whoa, my ski's slipping off. Just remember, never plow, okay? No snowplows. Keep it straight. you will be fine. Okay. Actually, be the 20. Straight. Do you go faster on the end run? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Is it any steeper, do you think? Not same, much? Same steepness. It's just longer. It's just longer. Just longer. Just a bigger 20, that's all. Yep. That's fun. A bigger 20. Go ahead. You got it. I got it. <laughs> it's fine. We'll yeah, be fine. Okay. Here. The longer you wait, you'll be more scared. I. Go. <laughs> The at the top of the first time freaks yeah. you out. That's the only thing, it's so fun. Huh? 60 seems like nothing now. Whoa!
0: And see, that's I think what you want your team to look like in times of uncertainty where we've never done this before, it's hard, it's scary, it's unknown. How do you build the confidence that people are willing to try? to put everything into it. And you know, what is your best leadership strategy for leading in times of uncertainty? Is it to be the genius to give the answers, to navigate your team through this, or is it to be the genius maker to use all of the intelligence on your team and collectively find answers to these unknown um, issues? My hope is that you will lead in a way that brings out the best in people around you, and you'll create an environment that, like in the words you said, was like it feels exhilarating, not demoralizing. Um, and I wish you, I wish you well as you and your teams sort through this. Tommy, you.
1: I think Liz, that all the general managers and leaders in the Florida Club most. Manage Association. Now know why I love you so much, Liz Wiseman. You're totally special. Um, and I've heard that Michael um or Urban Magic Johnson story so many times. And I just think it's so true that you know, we're not really truly magic until we multiply ourselves. And to be a heart-led leader is one thing, but to get others around you to also lead with heart and to love and multiply yourself, that's really magical. So thank you so much, Liz, for waking up so early on the West Coast and sharing your wisdom with us. Um, The credit password for everyone is multipliers. Um, We are uh, taking a couple month pause for the summer and our next um, speaker on our Heart Led Leader Series is August 24th with our good friend, uh, Chester Elton. I know you know Chester Liz and Chester wrote a book called The Carrot Principle. Yeah. He's all heart. (laughs) Yeah, everyone's gonna love Chester. He's just a beautiful human being. I wrote this book called All In, The Carrot Principle, which you've all heard of. That's um, August 24th, mark your calendars. Liz Wiseman, I love you, my friend. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And to all the managers at the Club Managers Association in Florida, thank you for your hard work. Thank you for your commitment to serve other people, to become heart led leaders, to change the cultures in your clubs and to make a difference every day. Thank you to our sponsors and my partner in crime, Beth Sargent for putting this webinar series together. God bless and have a great uh, Tuesday.